Okay, scripture for this morning. I wasn't kidding when I said to the kids, we needed the adults to uh, pay attention to their part of the story. For uh, the book of Samuel begins uh, with this uh, desire of Hannah and her husband to have a child. And so what is what the, the story that you just heard, an abbreviated version with the kids, is this, what we might even understand of more, it's more than months, almost years, probably maybe even a couple of decades of this woman, Hannah, praying for a child. So she has the baby um, and does what was promised. She uh, presents the baby, now a boy, Samuel, to be raised in the temple. And so our lesson for this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was very rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not gone out yet, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. And so Samuel went and lay down, and the Lord called him again, and Samuel Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time. And he got up and went to Eli. You know what he said. He said, Here I am, for you called me. And then Eli perceived that it was the Lord who was calling the boy. And therefore Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And then the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both the ears of anyone who hears it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end. For I've told him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did nothing. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the, that the in, inequity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Hmm. So Samuel lay there until the morning, and then he opened the doors of the house to the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell his vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And Samuel said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do to you and more if you hide anything from me. All of it that he's told you. So Samuel told Eli everything and he hid nothing from him. And then Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. 
As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh God, this morning we give you thanks for a word, your word, that comes to us about a call in our lives as there was a call in Samuel's. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts again that we might hear this call and that we might follow. Amen. That story that we just heard is dramatically different from the call story from last Sunday. You might remember that last Sunday's lesson was about Jesus' call to the, at least the four first disciples, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. We're told, we were uh, told in that story that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he sees these He sees these pairs of brothers, he uh, calls out to them, follow me, and we're told they immediately followed him. Even when it meant for that one pair of brothers that they were leaving their father behind in the boat. We have no indication that they knew Jesus ahead of time or that they were actually prepared for the call. They called. Jesus called and they answered. Now, this story about Samuel is completely different. Drastically different, really dramatically different. For it appears to me that it's a call that was years in the making. You've heard it, kids and grown-ups. Samuel's mother had prayed for a child, wept for a child. And then finally, finally, we don't know how long into the story, but we know it was a very long time that God answered her prayer, and she and Elkanah had this son, Samuel. And as an act of thanksgiving and a fulfillment of a promise, they present Samuel as a little boy to live in the temple, to serve with the priest Eli. They prayed for this child before he was born, and they offered this child up, wrapping him in love. It was uh, Honestly, something I hadn't thought about until I was actually sitting there with those kids and looking at their little faces. That part where it says that the, that the parents offered him to go live in the temple. That is, not, that is uh, not what we do now. But what we do do, right? But what we do do, and we just did this summer, is when we have children and babies that are baptized here, we, not just the parents, we as the congregation gathered here and who join us remotely, we prayed for them and we actually made that same similar commitment that Hannah made that we would present them and care for them so that someday they might for themselves be able to make a statement of Christ in their own lives. I just uh, ran off the words this morning and you prayed this. You prayed this this summer. When we baptized six little people in July, you prayed with God's help we will proclaim the good news and live according to the example of Christ. We will, surpri- we will surround these children with a community of love and forgiveness that they may grow in their service to others. We will pray for them. We will pray for them that they may be true disciples who walk in the way that leads to life. 
That's what we said we would do. So in this story this morning, Hannah's prayer, Hannah's prayer and Hannah's gift of of Samuel to the temple is, is part of our prayer. For the children we call our own and for all children. And in this time, this first verse says that Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the care of the priest Eli. And so we know that Samuel was living into and out of that prayer. Prepared to receive his call was Samuel. So what is it we hear? And we're going we're gonna to sing these words at the end of the service this morning. Eli's words were to Samuel, um, when, he, when you hear the voice of the Lord again, say, um, here I am, Lord, I'm listening. You know, there, there are all these words that, that we sing and know. Prepared for the call. Prepared for the call. So for Samuel, there were those moving in his life, even before he was born, that he might be prepared to be called. Hmm. NFL season underway. Every player on the field, whether they're playing on the field or sitting on the bench, are prepared to be called in, right? No one just shows up. The U.S. Open, 24-year-old Francis Tiafor, prepared to play. That was an incredible performance by this young man whose son of Sierra Leone uh, immigrants. His dad was hired as the main custodian, his maintenance person at this um, high-end training facility for young tennis players. And as part of his package for uh, benefits was that he had an office space that he could use as his residence. And his two sons then lived with him on the grounds while their mother worked nights as a nurse. So Francis, from the time he was four years old, prepared to play tennis. Even when the conditions were less than ideal. Natural ability, yes. But of course, it was years of preparation that brought him to this moment. And on this day, and on this day, 9-11... Another story about preparation came to my mind. The June 9th, 2008 Time magazine I have saved. The title was How to Survive a Disaster. I keep it in my cupboard. There's uh, tucked in the pages of this article about surviving a disaster was one story, just one single story, about how one single person made a difference. It's a story about Rick Rescola, who's head of security for Morgan Stanley, Dean and Witter and the World Trade Center. He came out of a military background and he served the end of his career in security work. Rescola was responsible for the safety of the employees on 22 floors of Tower 2. 2,700 employees he was responsible for. Rescorla had seen disasters and he believed that office workers could be trained to be survivors. He respected the ability of regular people to do better. After the parking garage bombing of the 
World Trade buildings in 93. He had seen people in his office go down the stairway, and he knew it took them too long. And so what did he do? All right, this is in following 93. So like eight years, getting to this point. What he began to do was run frequent and surprise fire drills for 2,700 people on 22 floors, right? He uh, trained employees to meet in the hallway between the stairways and go down the stairs two by two. I want to read you just a part, a couple paragraphs from this article. The author of this article says, the radicalism of Rescorla's drills cannot be overstated. Remember, Morgan and Stanley is an investment bank. Millionaire, high-performance bankers on the 73 Ford did not appreciate the interruptions. Each drill, which pulled brokers off their phones and away from their computers, cost the company money. But Rescorla did it anyway. His military training had, told, had taught him a simple rule of human nature. The best way to get the brain to perform under extreme stress is to repeatedly run it through rehearsals ahead of time. After the first few drills, Rescorla chastised employees for moving too slowly in the stairwell. He started timing them with his stopwatch, and they got faster. He also lectured employees about some of the basics of fire emergencies. Because roof rescues are rare and extremely dangerous, people should always go down. On the morning of 9-11, this is really hard. <laughs> All of a sudden, it sort of hit me about the time. Um, on the morning of 9-11, of Rescorla heard an explosion and saw Tower One burning from his office window. A Port Authority official came over the PA system and urged people to stay at their desks, but Rescorla grabbed his bullhorn walkie-talkie cell phone and began systematically ordering the Morgan Stanley employees to get out, and they performed beautifully. Why? Because they were prepared. Eight years. 22 floors, 2,700 employees. And so the story goes on. It tells about how they were evacuated. And in the end of this article, it tells us this. Rescorla taught Morgan Stanley employees to save themselves. It's a lesson that has become somehow rare and precious. When the tower collapsed, only 13 Morgan Stanley colleagues including Rescorla and four of his security officers were inside. The other 2,687 employees made it to safety. Hmm. Prepared, right? You feel it? What does it mean to be prepared for that moment? I mean, these are extreme, and, but it's big. And I'm telling you these stories because I believe this. I believe this about us here, individually and collectively, that we have ways that we can be prepared, whatever our age, whatever our ability, whatever our skill set, whatever our limitations are, big and small, we can be prepared to answer God's call. 
we can be prepared to answer God's call. Like Hannah, like Samuel, like Rick Rascorla, like all the employees that he led out of that burning building, we can be prepared to answer God's call in our lives. I have been surprised how often I have thought back to our uh, spring study on the walk. I've been uh, surprised how meaningful that was to me to look at with Adam Hamilton's five practices, five practices, right, practices of Christian discipleship, prayer and worship, study, service, giving, and sharing. And all of them are, again, practices that prepare us to receive a call. We have all of these offered to all of us, all of these offered to all of us in this time ahead. We're regular worship. That's important because we're together. Whether we're together um, remotely or together in person, prayer, that we do it collectively and that we do it alone. Study, all kinds of great opportunities for study coming up. Our kids are starting our study. We have our called Wednesday study. Uh, Reverend Jane Ellen Nicholas leading our, our uh, fall study on uh, discerning our way through this denominational change. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to be here after worship. And I'm going to be uh, leading a discussion in Miller Parlor for all of us on who is Stone Church? Who are we together? And, and for new people, um, I hope we'll join us to, to get a sense of how we're structured and what God's call is for service on our lives. Service, we do this all the time. Service and giving and sharing. We need to practice. We need to practice. That will help us be prepared, not just for disasters and big moments, but for every moment in our lives when we're called to serve, give and forgive others. I want to be prepared. I want us to be prepared. So that like Samuel, when we hear God's call to whatever task or ministry God has set before us, we will say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Here I am. Here we are. Amen.